Acts chapter 27. Before we get to verse 1, let's just kind of quickly recap. It's been a couple weeks. Two years earlier, to the opening of chapter 27, as he sat in a Roman barrack just north of the temple in the fortress of Antonio there in Jerusalem, Paul, in a moment of despair, a moment of doubt, uncertainty, received a promise from Jesus. He was promised that he would, despite the fact that his future looked bleak and his circumstances appeared to be trying, that he would testify of Jesus in the halls of Rome. And while the fruition of this promise would occur, as we've seen, according to both God's timing and according to God's sovereign will for Paul, the sovereign will that God deemed appropriate, as Acts 27 opens, finally, two years later, as a prisoner of Rome, appealing his case before Caesar, Paul is finally beginning the journey to Italy. And this context is important. Even though Paul is right now in the center of God's will, and in addition to being in the center of God's will, which is a great place to be, he's been equipped with all these promises given to him by God, right? He's in God's will. He's equipped with promises. But even then, we're going to see that the journey of God's will with his promises is not always, and pardon the pun, smooth sailing. Do you know that? Do you know that following Jesus, being right where Jesus wants you, doesn't always guarantee that life is going to be easy? It's an important concept. I feel like a lot of Christians need to wrap their brains around. If you're looking for life to be easy, there is a wide way, a wide path, a wide road to destruction. But following Jesus leads us down a narrow path, a tough, a tough journey, a tough terrain. It's more difficult following Jesus. So you can be in the center of God's will, equipped with his promises, but that is not a guarantee life is hunky-dory, that life is easy. As we're gonna see, over the next couple weeks, the will of God often includes, it brings with it, wicked storms, divine shipwrecks, and even snake bites. Beginning with verse 1, Acts chapter 27, Luke, our author, tells us that when it was decided that we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan regiment. So entering a ship of a dratamine, dratamum, I don't know, you figure it out. We put to sea, meaning to sail along the coast of Asia. Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, Luke tells us, was with us. Let's just set the scene for a moment. We're told the chapter opens when it was decided that we should set sail to Italy. Now, we don't know the specifics of how the decision was made. Last we saw, Festus was having a powwow with King Agrippa Bernice discussing the interesting case of Paul, who has just testified in chapter 26 before thousands in the Caesarean amphitheater of the goodness of Jesus. While we have no idea what precipitated this fine final movement after two years, it's clear Festus 
realizes he can no longer drag his feet. Paul must be sent to Rome. Because Paul is appealing his case to Caesar, we're told here that he's entrusted to the care of a man named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan Regiment. Now that's interesting. The Augustan Regiment, or what was also known as the Praetorian Guard, was an elite group of soldiers who were charged with the specific job of serving and protecting the emperor himself. Kind of consider the Augustan Regiment as a type of secret service. Our text is clear that Paul is also not traveling alone. In addition to Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, our author Luke is also part of the journey. Did you notice that? He said when it was decided that we should sail. Luke is part of our text, part of the trip. Also note that Paul was not the only prisoner charged to the care of Julius. As a matter of fact, we're told that there were a lot of prisoners, an unspecified amount, also making the journey to Rome. Now, the motion of the text, as we've done throughout Paul's missionary journeys, we know that the destination is Italy. Because that's the case, Julius decides to take this ship to that town. You can't pronounce it either, don't judge. Now, because the ship that they're going to board is ported in Caesarea, it's likely that they're heading back to their port of origin. We're going to put it up on the map so you kind of see they're on the way to Italy, but they're going to work their way to a port of origin, sailing, we're told, along the coast of Asia. That's western side of Turkey. Note, in the first century, when you were going to make such a journey, because you might be looking at that and saying, oh, Going that direction, that's what Apple Maps would do. Take you way the wrong direction versus Google Maps that will work you, you know, the other way. Like, why would you understand in the first century when you're making such a journey across a body of water, they stayed very close to the coast. Sailing across open bodies of water was not something done in the first century. So as we work with Paul, Luke, Aristarchus, as we work with this boat, Along their journey, it's not the direct path, but it is a safe path. So verse 3, we're told the next day, as they set sail, they landed at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him liberty to go to his friends and receive care. So from Caesarea, they sail north 60 miles, porting in the city of Sidon, Tyre and Sidon. Because their stop included a few days in the city, Luke records that Julius treated Paul kindly giving him liberty to go to his friends and receive care. Now keep in mind, Paul is not a condemned man. He's not been convicted of any particular crime. Matter of fact, we're not even sure what he's been charged with, but he's appealed the case nonetheless to Rome. As a result, Julius assumes that Paul is not a flight risk. I mean, he appealed his case to Caesar. Paul had every incentive to get his case to Caesar, so Julius gives him liberty. Now, please note that the idea behind receive care doesn't mean that he received medical attention, as some have speculated, but rather it just simply means to refresh himself, which I love it. Paul wanted to refresh himself, to re-energize himself, to be encouraged, and where did he go? To fellow Christians. He went to church. He went to a community of like-minded people. And in that, 
he found encouragement and refreshment. He was re-energized. Verse 4, well, when we had put to sea from there, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. And when we had sailed over the sea, which is off Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy, and he put us on board. Now, Luke records that from Sidon, they sailed under the shelter of Cyprus. This means that they actually, as the map will show, went north of the island of Cyprus because we're told the winds were contrary. They're journeying off the coast of uh, Cilicia and Pamphylia. We're told coming to the city of Myra, a city of Lucia. And it's there that Julius gets off of one boat, jumps onto this Alexandrian ship because it's going to Italy, their final destination. Now, historically, this is interesting, telling us that it's a ship from Alexandria. So as we work through this story and as we get into the scene, you can actually picture this ship because we have archaeological ruins. We, we know what it looked like. We're going to put up a picture, but let me describe it. Historically, this ship would have been an Egyptian ship coming from the city of Alexandria, which was the second most powerful city in the world, it would have likely been a grain freighter going to Rome to supply food for the Roman capital. The ship would have been massive, about 140 feet long, 36 feet wide. It would have one large sail on one mast with two paddles in the, the, the rear of the ship in order to, to guide it, to direct it in the stern. We'll soon learn, by the way, that there will be over, well, not over, but there will be 276 people on board this ship. That's a lot of people. Now, what's important to keep in mind, understanding it's an Alexandrian ship, why Luke gets specific here as a historian, and this will play itself out in the events to come, is that a ship of this size and design would have not only been very slow, been very heavy, but it would demand, it would require kind of perfect sailing conditions. It would need the wind the right way at the right time in order to make its way uh, to its destination. So verse 7, that context, Luke says that when we sailed slowly many days and arrived with difficulty off Sinindus, the wind not permitting us to proceed we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salome. Passing it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near the city of Lacia. Now, when, we, when much time had been spent and sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but also our lives. Now let's get back to the motion of the text before we get into the particulars here. From Myra, Luke tells us they sailed very slowly and with difficulty off Sinundus. And because, quote, the wind did not permit them to proceed along that particular course, they sailed then under the shelter of Crete, arriving with difficulty to a place called Fair Havens. Now keep in mind, they began this journey sometime around August, mid-August. 
Luke is making it very clear. Did you notice it over and over and over again? That almost immediately upon leaving Myra, this voyage was very difficult. Things were not jiving. Things were not working. They were not proceeding at a decent click. It was rough seas. Then we're told now that, quote, the fast was already over, which is likely a reference to the Feast of Atonement, making it probably now about mid-October, um, Paul voices a concern that they shouldn't be sailing any further. Luke even tells us that because of this time frame, sailing was dangerous. Understand that in the first century, in addition to avoiding open water and sailing close to the coastline, no one sailed during the winter months. Beginning with November, continuing up to about March, everyone ported for the winter. So they're kind of in this gray area. Do they sail? Do they not? And understanding the intentions of the crew to push forward anyway, even while it's been difficult to this point, Paul, we're told, advised them to stay in fair havens. Why? Well, look at it. Paul perceived that the voyage would end with disaster. Now, Julius listens to the seasoned seamen, decides to sail anyway, which you can understand to a degree, right? I mean, how would Paul have any context to advise seamen on how to sail a ship? I mean, Paul's a tent maker, slash rabbi, slash Christian apologist, slash missionary. I mean, Paul's not a sailor. Or was he? You know, what's interesting is that though Paul might not have been a seaman by trade, we're given an interesting detail that, that's deserving of our attention in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 25. You don't have to turn there, but let me explain what this insight provides. Paul, in writing to the Corinthians before this moment, mentions that three times up until here, he's been shipwrecked. He's like, I might not know about sailing, but I know about shipwrecks. And what you're planning to do is a recipe for disaster. In addition to that, Paul also says that as a result of one of these shipwrecks, he spent a night and a day in the deep. Floating on the Mediterranean Sea. No, no thank you. Not how I'm going out. Like open water, ocean, no land. I mean, I'm just shark bait. I, I am not game for that. At this point, the Apostle Paul has logged, and some scholars have calculated this, I didn't take the time to do it, that he's logged about 3,500 miles on sea. Case in point, Paul kind of had a little bit of knowledge of what he was talking about. Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman, the owner of the ship, than by the things spoken by Paul. And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail from there also, if by any means they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, opening towards the southwest and northwest, and winter there. Now, according to the text, there were two fundamental problems with wintering and fair havens. Two things that made it very unappealing. First, the harbor, we're told, was not suitable to winter in. Not only was it likely that the harbor itself was not designed 
to accommodate such a large ship. But the implication is that the town itself was kind of a bore. That the crew's thinking, we're going to spend five months here in Fairhaven? It doesn't sound like an exciting town, does it? It doesn't sound like Fairhaven has an exciting nightlife. I mean, you're going to spend five months, and there's over 270-some-odd people. There's not enough hotels. There's not enough restaurants. They're sitting there thinking, this harbor stinks. It's not made for this boat. And this town, ugh. And then they're thinking, well, about 40 miles further on is this town, Phoenix, which it would already seem had a better harbor, we're given some nautical details why it would be a better harbor. You can research that on your own, where it faced, how it protected from the winter. But mainly, there's probably a lot more to do in Phoenix. And so the owner, the ship people, they're like, Julius, you don't want to stay in Fair Havens. Let's just go. It's just 40 miles, which they could make in about a day. It wouldn't take very long with the right conditions. And we're told, verse 13, that the south wind started to blow softly, which supposing now that they had obtained their desire, immediately they put out to sea. So they're going from Fair Havens to Phoenix and they sailed close by Crete, but not a good word. And, and if you're on the ocean and you're like, things were going great, the sun was shining, the wind was blowing, but it's like kind of like the dun, 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 you know it's going to take a turn because Luke says not long after, a tempestuous headwind. That's also not good. Called a Euroclidon. When you name a storm, when like a storm has its own name, also not a good thing. So when the ship was caught, and Luke says, and could not head into the wind, they decide to let her drive. And running under the shelter of an island called Clada, we secured the skiff with difficulty. When they had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship. And fearing lest they should run aground on the Sardis sands, they struck sail and were so driven. Initially, things looked great. They set out of fair havens. They're sailing close to Crete. The south winds gently blowing at their back when things take a turn. This storm, a Euroclidon arises. Luke says the ship is caught in this headwind. It's quickly being driven south off the coast of, of Crete towards an island called Claudette. There's nothing they can do. They are at the mercy with no wind. It's not like they're cranking up the motor and we're going to like, which is the way to sail, by the way. Always bring a motor. Because if the wind turns, you, you need some type of power, energy to get you where you need to go. But here they are, and now, because things are happening, and they're securing the skiff, and they're using cables to undergood, and they want to avoid these dangerous Sardis sands, they take down the sail. They're just now allowing the ship, because there's nothing they can do. They might as well not fight it. They hunker down. And they just let her be driven into the sea. They want to avoid North Africa. And because, verse 18, we were exceedingly tempest-tossed. I kind of want to throw up right there. You know, I mean, imagining ex exceedingly tempest-tossed. Everybody's green. There's no Dramamine. 
The next day, they lightened the ship. And on the third day, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. Now when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest, which means a, a big one, beat on us, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. After one day, because they were exceedingly tempest-tossed, Luke tells us the crew immediately take emergency measures to lighten this already very heavy ship, fearing they might sink. Basically, what we're told is that after one day, any non-essential gear or luggage, adding unnecessary weight to the ship gets thrown overboard. Then, as Luke records, because those measures don't seem to improve their predicament, Luke tells us that on the third day, we, which means it's everyone's helping, they threw the ship's tackle overboard. Now, this word tackle, it tells us that, that not only are they throwing over non-essential gear, now they're throwing over essential gear that you need to sail the ship. I mean, anything they can throw overboard, that's how bleak the circumstance is. I mean, all hope is given up. We're told that even the strategy failed. Here they are in this relentless pounding tempest. Luke says that neither sun nor stars could be seen in the sky. You can kind of feel it, right, as you're reading through this, that even Luke loses a sense of time. First day, third day, many days. They couldn't see the sun. They didn't have the stars. They lost a sense of time. They have no way to navigate the ship. They're in this black, darkened ocean. It's scary, man. Is there any wonder that Luke would write that at this point, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up? You know, I'm of the opinion that the use of weather slash nature terms to describe the ebb and flow of life it's commonplace. We do this all the time, mainly because it's a universal experience. We all experience the weather and nature that we understand. Thus, we can kind of communicate what's going on in our lives using very relatable terms. I mean, everyone, regardless of race, ethnicity, religion, socioeconomic, economical status, gender, whatever it happens to be, we get nature. We understand the weather, the experiences of the natural movements of the world around us, make weather imagery, phrases, relatable, relevant, understandable. For example, you all know what would be meant when someone would say, you know, I'm in a good season right now. It's just a good season. Life, whew, life is smooth sailing. You know, my, my judgment was clouded. I mean, what does that mean? That, that we understand clouds. We understand fog. We understand the difficulty of seeing. My judgment was clouded. The winds of change are upon me. <laughs> Clear skies heading my way. It's a new dawn. It's a new day. We get that. My future is looking bright. I'm entering my twilight years. The sun is setting on my life. I've sown well, it's time to reap the harvest. That's what you'd say at retirement, I think. 
I'm experiencing right now the fruit of my labor. I have this sinking suspicion. If you're a Game of Thrones fan, winter is coming. We all get it. We understand. Now, now beyond these, isn't it true how analogous storms can be with the difficult seasons we encounter in life? Have you you ever encountered a storm? I, I use that phrase, and you know exactly what I mean. A storm. You know, when life takes a turn, when things grow onerous, when our experiences grow difficult, I mean, the scene that we set, these men in this boat on this dark sea, being beaten by the wind and the waves and the rain, Like, we get that. Like, we can somewhat relate on an emotional, a spiritual sense. Like, their experience is relatable, isn't it? And a storm. Isn't it true that often our will fails? We're in a storm. And you know what? You have no power over storms, do you? Next time one rolls in, you walk out there and say, stop. Like the only person that was ever able to command the wind and the waves to obey was Jesus, and you ain't him. When it comes to a storm, our will is broken. I'm at the mercy of it. There's nothing I can do to stop it. The wind and the currents, I'm at their mercy. Our strength fails, doesn't it? We might've been strong initially, but storms have a way, the rain and the waves of just beating us down slowly and surely till we're like, I can't go on. Our minds fail. Storms cause us to question things we were so certain of. We, we become disoriented. We lose our bearings. Our emotions fail. Time becomes relative. I lose track of today and tomorrow and the next day. Is this relatable? You know, our spirit sometimes even fails. As with these guys, you reach a point in the storm where, you know, you just grow hopeless. Will the storm ever end? Is there light ahead? Is that thing I see, that little light at the end of this dark tunnel, is it escape? or the train heading my way that's about to finish me off. Have you ever felt that? I have. You're disoriented. You're hopeless concerning the future. Storms can be relentless. You know, in regards to our story, what I find so interesting is that one storm had a different purpose for every man on board. You know, all men face storms. All men and women get caught in storms. And yet one storm can have a different purpose for each person experiencing it. One storm affecting every man for different purposes. For the men who failed to heed Paul's warning, Julius, the helmsman, the owner of the ship, this storm, well, we might call it a corrective storm. They should have listened to Paul, right? since they relied on worldly wisdom as opposed to godly counsel. 
They're in this storm. It's a storm of their own making, and they have no one to blame but themselves. Have you ever experienced a corrective storm? One that you made for yourself? One that you can't blame anybody else on? Now, what's interesting about corrective storms is that at some point they morph into a storm of instruction. I mean, even storms of correction possess a divine purpose. As we're going to see, God will use this storm to do something amazing. God will use this storm to reveal himself in a very powerful and radical way to a group of men that didn't know about his son, about Jesus. He'll use the storm to teach them about his love, about his grace, about his providence and his provision. And yet, we will also see that a storm of correction transitions into a storm of instruction, but if you refuse the correction and the instruction, that storm, that tempest, can quickly become a storm of judgment. And yet, for Paul and his traveling companions, we'll see that this tempest was none of the other types. It was instead a directive storm. Though Paul was bound for Rome, it was, right, his promised destination, it's going to become obvious, abundantly obvious, that God had a stop along the journey that had not been part of the original manifest. As we're going to see, in the case of Paul specifically, God was very much behind the tempest. He would use this storm to orchestrate events in such a way that he would put his man exactly where he wanted him to be, a little island called Malta. God had a plan. But we're told, verse 21, that after a long abstinence from food, Paul stood in the midst of them. So all hope is lost. No one's eating. Paul stands up and he says, men, you should have listened to me. <laughs> I love that guy. I mean, you should have listened and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. But now I urge you to take heart. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar, and indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore, take heart, men, for I believe God that it will be just as it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. Now, let's just take a moment and kind of unpack what Paul's actually saying. Like he begins, Men, you should have listened to me. And since you didn't, you've incurred this disaster and loss. Now, on the surface, it would be easy to say that Paul's throwing out one colossal, I told you so. And he might have been, but I think he's also kind of reminding everyone on board that their situation was the result of them failing to listen. You didn't listen to me. And as a result of not listening, this is the storm you're in, the storm of correction. And Paul does that for an important reason. Why? Because he wants to instill confidence in what he's about to say next. You didn't listen before, right? And look what you got. I got something else to say that you would be wise to listen to. Paul, we're told, urges them to take heart. For there will be no loss of life, but only of the ship. 
imagine you're standing there. It's dark, the wind, the waves, you can't see. This short little Jewish guy gets up. Take heart. No one's going to die, but the ship's going down. Excuse me? I mean, that's like, a, that's like a, a good news, bad news proposition. The ship's going down, but no one will drown. Okay, I appreciate the no one will drown, Paul, but let's get back to the first line. The ship's going down? How am I to be encouraged by the fact that the ship's going down? You see, in the moment, and it would be reasonable, right? It would be very hard to imagine a scenario where what Paul is saying would actually happen, where their ship would sink, but no one would drown. I mean, there was nothing about their present circumstances that supported Paul's promise, was there? It was almost laughable. The ship's going to sink? Duh. Master of the obvious. No one's going to drown? I mean, I mean, you've got seamen putting on their rubber duckies like, no, some people going to drown, boss. There's no way what you're saying makes any sense on the surface. And knowing their obvious skepticism, Paul continues, look at it again. He substantiates this promise by saying that there stood by me this night an angel of the God in whom I belong and serve, saying, do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar, and indeed God has granted you all those who sail with you. Now, what's really interesting about this angelic message is that it reveals to us the nature of what Paul's been praying, doesn't it? While everyone's freaking out, all hope's being lost, Paul is somewhere on the ship, on his knees, spending time with the Lord. And I believe Paul was confident in his promise, the promise made, by Jesus, that he would make it to Rome. I think Paul, he's like, I've been shipwrecked three times before. I've spent a night and a day in the deep. The ship's going down. I'm cool. Like, I'm good. I got a promise from Jesus. Ain't no storm keeping me from Rome. I think Paul had confidence in that. I don't think he was hopeless in that. But I do think, and this is significant, Paul was praying not for himself, but he was praying, he was worried, he was concerned of all the men on board that ship who did not possess such a promise as he. It's interesting that the first words of this angel were designed to calm his fear. Do not be afraid, Paul. Was Paul afraid for himself? I don't think so. I think he was afraid for everyone else because they didn't have the same promise. Paul knew if that ship went down and he was clutching a life vest, he was liable to get washed up right there at Rome or swallowed by a great fish and spit up. He knew he was getting there, but he was worried about everyone else. Paul knew he'd survive this particular storm, but he wasn't so confident about everyone else. And this statement, I love it, it reveals the heart of his prayer. The angel tells him, God has granted you, all those who sail with you. It indicates that Paul had been praying for their safety, that he had been interceding on their behalf. Now understand, if this storm is a metaphor for life, life itself, the example modeled by Paul, his attitude in the storm, is both powerful, compelling, and honestly convicting. As Paul, I hope you realize that you, as a follower of Jesus, should have confidence 
that no matter what storm this life will bring your way, it has no power over your final lasting destination. You will make it to heaven, friend. No storm can keep you from that. You've been given a promise of eternity. And yet, isn't it equally true that not everyone in the storm you share possesses the same type of eternal assurance? You know where you're going. But sometimes we have other people in the same storms or others that we're not so certain about. You see, based upon Paul's example, what should be our approach as Christians, confident in a destination and a promise in light of this reality? You know, first, the example I see from Paul here is that he cared about his fellow journeymen. You know, you don't pray for someone you don't care about, which is why we should pray for our enemies, because it will change our heart concerning them. The only way to love an enemy is to pray for that enemy. I was reading a biography on vacation of Corrie ten Boom and her sister, a beautiful, beautiful saint who died in a concentration camp. She would pray for her, her Nazi guardsmen. Her attitude was powerful, but her attitude was about praying. There was one instance where they were in this bungalow and, and it, was, it was built for 400 and there was 1,400 ladies piled into this just dirty, smelly hell hole. And the thing that, that Corey Ten Boom personally wasn't able to get over was the fleas. She writes about this. It was the fleas. And her sister said, sis, we should pray and thank God for the fleas. I don't want to. No, we need to. And her sister made her pray and thank God for the fleas. Well, they would hold Bible studies in this bungalow with these women. Their light was shining for Jesus in the midst of a storm unimaginable. And you know, we'd later find out that no guard would ever enter the barracks for one reason. Their Bible study was never discovered. Their Bible was never confiscated for one reason. The guards refused to go in there because of the fleas. Thanking the Lord for the fleas. Do you care about those around you? I mean, honestly, those who share the same ship but don't have the same promise, those whose destination is actually a worse one than the ship you're on, you know, it's been said, and it might be cliche, but it's so true, it's so real. For the believer, no matter how bad this life might get, do you know this will be the worst your existence will ever experience? The worst this life will throw at you is the worst it will ever be, because guess what? It gets better from here. Death is a moment of translation, a moment of glory, a, more, a moment of reward. It gets better. As bad as it gets, that's your hell. It's the worst it'll ever be. And yet think about it. For the, for the non-believer, the best this life has to offer is the best it'll ever be. Like you hold a key. You hold something that's radical, an antidote, a remedy. You know Jesus. And there are so many people around you that need to know him too. Do you care? Paul cared, didn't he? He's on his knees, not praying for himself. He's praying for the other men. 
knowing that if the ship went down, their destiny would be sealed, and for many of them, it would be hell. The second thing we see is that we should intercede in, in prayer. When was the last time you prayed for the unbelievers in your life? That prodigal son, that annoying boss, that pesty neighbor, that person, that friend that you know doesn't, isn't filled with the Spirit and walking in light. Do you pray for them? Paul prayed. He cared and he prayed. And then notice, Paul had the boldness to share the promise of God found in his word. Paul had been given a message, right? He cared about these people. He was praying for these people. And when God gave a message, he was willing to stand up and to share it. There's a promise. There's a reward. Now, before we continue, I love this line. The God to whom I belong and whom I serve. In the Greek, this phrase, to whom I belong, can literally be translated, and whom I exist. It's not even that he was a possession. It's that his very existence, his all in all was encompassed in Jesus. Not only is he a purchased possession of Christ, Ephesians 1.14, but as a practical byproduct of this reality, he performed a sacred service. He belonged to God, and he served God. You know, the knowledge that he belonged to God had been given, had given him unshakable promises by God, and these things only served to be great encouragement to Paul in the midst of the storm. I'm going to repeat that, and I want you to process it. The knowledge that he belonged to God and had been given unshakable promises by God served to be great encouragement to Paul in the midst of his storm. Look how he closes. He says, therefore, take heart, men, for I believe God that it will be just as it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. Don't overlook those three words by which Paul's entire perspective and outlook hung. He could confidently declare that they all take heart, take heart, take heart in the midst of your storm. Why? And he said it with confidence. I believe God. Notice his belief was in the present tense. I believe God right now. Paul's confidence was not based in human wisdom. Human wisdom said they were going down. It wasn't based in the fact that he had some insight that the situation would take a turn for the better. It wouldn't. It would only get worse. Instead, the solid rock, the solid ground on which Paul could boldly declare these things was the fact that he believed God. This morning, I want to close with this question. You might be in a storm, and you might have lost your bearings. And that storm is relentless. And it's pounding. And the rain is swirling. And the wind is blowing. You can't see. And you're frustrated. You don't know what to do, where to go. Do you belong to God? God has 
given you promises. The promise to work all things for the good, those who love him and those called according to his purposes. He's given you promises. Do you believe him? Paul could say, here's the situation, folks. It looks bad. It's going to get worse. I got no expectation that anything's going to improve. The ship's going down. We must run aground on an island, a.k.a. shipwreck. But not one life will be lost. And I know you might think I'm nuts, but I'm holding to this for one reason and one reason alone. I believe God. Do you believe him? That he's working something good. That he has a plan. That that storm is not meant for your destruction, but serves a divine purpose. Your destination is heaven, friend. And in the, in the moment, there's meaning and there's purpose, but do you believe? And this was more than just like, I believe. It was, I believe. I don't have a belief. I'm believing. I'm holding. It's all I got. Jesus is a solid rock. And he's an anchor. He's an anchor. 